one of the things I've encountered now, maybe the last year, is to... Uh, well, I taught myself Elixir with quite a bit of help from you and some books. We can get into that later, which ones. And um, I had a blast doing so. But I kind of... It felt like I cheated. I don't know if I did. Because I have uh, uh, studied way too much functional programming at Chalmers uh, and uh, uh, encountered Haskell and KML and so on on Chalmers. Uh, so that was very nice. And I had quite an idea of how to do functional programming. So recursion, map filter reduce, and all of those were... They were already in my bone marrow. That's not something you say in English. <laughs> <laughs> Idioms. I had a quite good grasp of them. Uh, so they were in my tool belt, maybe. In my bone marrow. Um, so yep. when I encountered Elixir, it was just to get used to the new syntax, get used to putting the module before the functions all the time, and so on. I also encountered Erlang at Chalmers. Just popped up in Erlang and Elixir are... They are definitely from the same part of the the hood or something. Um, they share some... They share some genes. They do. Absolutely. Uh, and other trousers too. So, I might have... I've had some advantages learning Elixir. Uh, so when I, I got a new colleague and was like, or a co-worker, and was like, okay, this is going to be fun and easy. Uh, here, uh, read Sasha Jurich's book about Elixir, because he knows what he's doing. And because I had really enjoyed that book earlier. So, and that was, was a good start. And then we've kind of, encountered small bumps on the road because when someone asks are there any patterns in elixir are there how do you how do you model things in a big scale architecture wise and so on i don't have any really good answers and we don't do the shortcut by using phoenix if we would have used phoenix we could have gone phoenix is everything let's model everything in the way phoenix does it that would partially uh, speak to your your challenge, yeah. Yeah, uh, which is like the way you do it in Django and Rails and so on. Just use the framework, don't think about it. And if you look into people who do, there are lots of people who go, well, maybe not. Maybe you should build your business logic in their own modules and call into them from the framework. So if you ever need to change framework, not very likely, then you're not too intertwined, but... Yeah. So I guess the big question here is how to teach functional programming. What are the the steps beyond the first steps? Because I think the first steps we got them figured out somehow. Do the <laughs> recursion, do the map filter reduce. I'm pretty sure the approach is try to explain a monad. There is no second step. No. Understanding monads is the last step. My understanding is that you start there and you never stop. <laughs> oh, it's like um, trying to quit Vim. Yeah. Yeah, that's reasonable. Well, you know, with Elixir, you don't have to worry about monads, fundamentally. And as such, I think 
there's a ton of ways you can approach it. I got a comment on a YouTube video recently, mm-hmm. which complained that I was explaining like Elixir and functional programming from the context of object-oriented programming and sort of comparing the for comprehension to a for loop and such. Weren't you allowed to do that? And I was a little bit annoyed because it was uh, not the most kindly or uh, pleasantly stated feedback or criticism. But I also got the sense that, yeah, out of spite, I would maybe make an introduction to Elixir that has no uh, regard for other languages that exists in this functional vacuum. And honestly, I think that would be a good approach. And I, the criticism is relevant. If I don't think it was particularly useful to that video in that I don't know that most, most materials for Elixir tries to teach Elixir from just functional fundamentals and ignoring other languages. And with good reason, there's some stuff you can lean on and you, you often have to retrain a developer a little bit to get them from object-oriented to functional. So it makes sense that a lot of the materials do it that way but i also think that there's a lot of stuff you just don't have to bother with if you pretend that the rest of computing does not exist that's kind of the way we do it all the time right we, we try to build something that's self-contained so we can just work with the things we see on the screen right now and then ignore the rest of the world to save yeah. brain cycles yeah sort of assume that the abstractions of functional programming and what we're building on here are solid, sound, and true. If you scratch the surface, there's nuances there, but you don't have to start there. You'd never start, well, you shouldn't start uh, introducing someone to Python by saying, and this is what happens at the memory level. Yeah. Python is a high-level language. That means it's designed to be an abstraction. And Elixir is as well. Not all functional programming languages are quite so highly, so high-level as Elixir, but I think they all are fundamentally somewhat high-level. Is that fair to say, you think? It depends who who you ask. But I think all functional programming languages are high level because it's very hard to write. You really want a garbage collector, for instance. And we could dive down the uh, what's a high level function, (laughs) what's a high level programming language rabbit hole, because there are probably some definitions out there. I think having a garbage collector is a good start. But on the other hand, Go has a garbage collector. And is that a high-level programming language, or is it a low-level programming language? And Haskell has a garbage collector, but you can write quite gnarly low-level stuff in it, but you have to to really... uh, There's quite a bit of challenge to go down that low level. The best way to write low-level Haskell is to write something that generates C code. (laughs) So, yeah. Rabbit holes. So I think most of the we could just assume that if if a programming language is primarily a functional programming language, we could say that is a high level programming language too. Yeah, that it at least has some fundamental higher level abstractions. Yeah, that set it apart from uh, the really uh, low level languages. Yeah, and I started to think about how I would teach Elixir assuming no previous programming experience or at least sort of instruct someone this is how you operate an elixir (laughs) this is this is how you do it and i would cut many things from 
from the language. I don't think I would, for example, use the for comprehension because I think you need to know enum map and enum reduce. And I wouldn't introduce the if macro or cond really. I think I would sort of force case as the only the only way of branching code. Why case? I wouldn't initially introduce separate function headers because that just compiles down to a case statement. Okay. So if you want to sort of keep the language really small for learning, there's a f- there's like a very small set of things to teach until you get into processes and message passing and stuff. Not that those are super deep and complex necessarily at their fundamentals, but that's where you that's where you certainly get into more and more things. Yeah. Uh, but there's like, oh, values. That's a thing. So a number is a value, a string is a value. Uh, a decimal uh, number is also a value. All right, we can do a few things with those. We can plus them, we can minus them, we can concatenate strings. All right, what else can we do? Oh, we can bind them to a name, All right? Yeah, with a equals thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, we can do this and this and that. All right. And then maybe touch on pattern matching. Why touch on pattern matching there? Well, bec- before you can do branching code with case, you should know what pattern matching is because you do pattern matching in case. All right, from there. Well, um, then I think we get into sort of grouping values, compose sort of compositions of values. So the tuple is the first one, then the list, then the map. And I think you need to cover all of those in sort of one fell swoop and just fundamentally uh, introduce them, some very basic parts. Then you can get into enumerables, enumerations. And somewhere, I don't remember where I sort of put it in my outline, but somewhere around this point, we need to introduce the function. That's quite late. Yeah, and then we're off to the races, I think. Yeah, but a function needs a bunch of things to do anything of interest. Yeah. Uh, so it needs values. And I mean, we we'll, we would touch on function calls earlier than we would define a function, I'd say. That's reasonable. Yeah, map put, map get, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you're essentially ready to start getting into processes and message passing because those are Elixir fundamentals. Yeah. And uh, I would probably have an aside about reading and writing files uh, because that's a way to get input and output into any program. Uh, and if I did this in a live book, I would certainly introduce sort of, oh, and this this is some code you don't really have to care about that we need to get data in and out of the live book because there's some cool stuff you can do if you want to want to play with input and output in live book. But then you have to bring in some uh, boilerplate for it. So that that's something I would like to explore and try to put together a sort of elixir fundamentals, just the absolutely most important parts because everything else flows from those. Or that's the thinking. That sounds good. I'm not sure it's the useful way of learning elixir, but it's an interesting way of trying to teach it. I think it's very important to have many different ways to learn um, because there's always someone who needs that way to learn. I was also thinking about, you can write almost anything using, no, let me restate that. You can write 
anything using recursion. There's yes. Turing and Gödel and Church walks into a bar and Bellman's there. And uh, but so that means that that you can express uh, while loops and all that nice see goodness using recursion. Uh, which also means that you shouldn't use recursion because you can't see if you just glance at the recursive function what it does. So prefer uh, the functions from the enum module. So I was thinking about maybe putting together some exercises like write this recursive function using the uh, functions from in the enum module or use this recursive or write this recursive function using reduce or using map or using well, the yeah. functions in the map module and so on. But I haven't really got into it yet. Yeah, there, there's a few different angles you could take there. You could sort of give different scenarios. And here's a here's a pipeline of enum module calls. Make this more efficient. Yeah. All right. Here's a big old reduce. Make this easier to read. Yeah. <laughs> because that's optimizing for two very different things. The enum module, if you sort of just chain it, since Elixir is not lazy uh, in the way, for example, Haskell is. So in Haskell, I don't think it really matters if you chain a bunch of uh, enumeration calls because it will be lazy evaluated and pretty efficient. That's true. But in Elixir, that's not the case. If you want lazy evaluation, you should use streams. Yep. And something I had a sort of epiphany moment with was when I was trying to use the stream module to do something clever. And I'm like, why isn't there a reduce in here? Indeed, why isn't there a reduce in the stream module? Well, to be able to do a reduce, you need to be able to, or what a reduce does is that it allows you to change the shape of the data. And the stream module has no, does not assume that there's a beginning and an end to the stream. So fundamentally, if you are calling a reduce, you are enumerating the stream. Yeah. So you're taking it from lazy to eager. Yep. And that's something that that didn't necessarily occur to me initially. And I think one, that's probably a linchpin in teaching that part of functional programming, that reduce or fold um, is the way we can change the the shape of a collection of an enumerable while map is much more sort of straightforward and efficient, but it cannot change the size of it. Yep. And those are really the two primitives. There there are no others. (laughs) Well, I think there's one primitive. It's reduce. You can implement everything in terms of reduce. Right. You can implement both both map and filter in terms of reduce. But if you if you implement map by way of reduce, you are I think you're losing a property of map, which is that map is simpler and can be completely parallel. Hmm. Not all implementations of map are uh, parallel or, or most aren't. It's more common to just do it one item at a time. But reduce, like you can implement a map with reduce, but I think it's not equivalent necessarily. I think it is because you could, if you want a parallel map implemented in terms of reduce, then for each element in the list you take, spawn 
and return the PID of the spawned process, put that on the list, and then somewhere later, someone can collect them all. Yeah. All right. But to what I'm speaking to is probably the fact that, this, for example, the stream module does have map. It does not have reduce. And that's because a map can be lazy uh, and sort of as functional programming fundamentals. A map can be lazy, a reduce cannot, right? Nah, reduce can still be lazy. It exists in Haskell, right? Both in lazy and eager Can you still get a lazy evaluation out of a reduce? Yeah. But I guess it's just sort of stacking up the, this is what it should be doing. All right, another example then. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that's sort of just a low level optimization, not uh, not necessarily speaking to the the way map and reduce fundamentally work. Uh, if the algorithm or whatever you want to call it, map reduce, which is this uh, data wrangling thing, you're familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. So that is is the thing where you send out a sort of query to, or so rather, you send out a functions to your data set, ideally. Um, and you go, okay, take all the data and map it this way. So we want to transform every item to perhaps only pick out these fields. That does not change the size of the data set. It cannot. Yeah, that's And true. then you bring together all the mapped results and you reduce those. Yes. And that has to be done at a single point, or at least uh, if you're sort of doing it very distributed, you could potentially do it at multiple points. But at the end, it has to be a single point because that's when you're changing the size of the data set. The reduce operation could be, you could have a, this is a made up word, so don't take it too seriously. Uh, You could have a reduction tree. So you have, say that you have a thousand machines running the map. So the data is split yeah. up in thousand pieces. That's kind of kind of a mess to reduce. So then you have a hundred reduction machines or something. Mm. Uh, and they reduce a tenth of it all. And then they yeah. send their result to half of the uh, reduction machines, which keep doing this reduction. Yeah, that's... That becomes sort of a that becomes sort of a map reduce of map reduces, yeah. or at least a yeah. map reduce reduce. But the thing is sort of the same. The efficiency of map reduce comes from being incredibly parallel, and then it has this this fairly simple approach of whittling down results. So I mean, um, I think initially it can, for example, query query for only parts of the data at each sort of at each node and then it maps through that for for transforming it and rid, getting rid of unnecessary fields and that kind of thing but you cannot for example sum numbers at the map stage of a map reduce indeed yeah so you can you can't calculate aggregations and things like that so that's sort of the fundamental difference i think between map and reduce and why they're not entirely equivalent i don't know if i'm right but i feel right yeah it's a good feeling but you can you can implement maybe i haven't been very clear uh it's very dangerous to drink espresso and then trying to explain things uh (laughs) so uh the idea here is that you can implement map in terms of reduce 
but you cannot implement reduce in terms of map. Yeah, I, I agree with the second part. I'm not certain. Well, yes, you can implement map in terms of reduce, but you can be more efficient if you don't, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think we're in agreement. <laughs> yeah, so so this is some kind of, of platonic idea of some... I don't know, tree of functions or something. Uh, and you can also implement filter in terms of reduce. That one's easier. Yeah, filter is... Uh, because filter changes the, the size. Yeah, it doesn't change the shape, though. It will... The resulting data will have the same shape, but it might be smaller. Well, it depends on what you mean by shape. If you don't include the length of the <laughs> enumerable in yeah. the shape, yes. yeah. In a very hand wavy way, so it it will still be a list. And things like reverse uh, also not achievable with map. Indeed, because you're changing the order. Yes, and map can sort do that. also not achievable by. <laughs> yeah, but I think sort is implementable by reduce, but oh, it's yeah, not very them. efficient. Every so everything is implementable. Every way of enumerating, I think, is implementable with reduce. Yes. So I think the fine point here is is that if you see reduce in the code and you're lucky, you can replace the reduce with one or more more descriptive and less powerful functions from the enum module. Yeah, and that's the interesting bit because when I was doing a bunch of this and not super comfortable with it. It was like, I liked map because that was straightforward. I liked filter because that was straightforward. But at a certain point, whenever I ended up needing to do something more complex, it was like, damn it, it's going to have to be a reduce. And the moment you hit that note, like I'm doing something multiple levels or I'm building up a map dictionary, let's say, Uh, a map in elixir um it's very unfortunate naming there yeah that's a little bit of a problem yeah but yeah it's gonna have to be a reduce to do what i want then i can usually just fold uh, the excuse the pun uh, the map and the filter into that as well because at that point if i'm if i'm writing a reduce but that depends does it get make the reduce more messy to read or not etc it's uh trade-offs but understanding map and reduce feels very fundamental to doing well with these uh, with functional programming concepts like you can use the for comprehension in elixir and it's very very powerful i'm bad at using it because i've gotten used to the enum module but i mean if you actually want to build a map map in elixir the for into thing is very very convenient yeah you can even add like a when or where or whatever it is to filter on a particular value. So, and if it returns nils, it skips them. So it has a bunch of sort of features, which is odd. And I wouldn't teach it initially. I would encourage people to just learn the enum stuff, understand what you're doing, then you can get fancy with it. Like with, I would ignore with entirely initially. Yeah, That's a... It's very useful keyword and expression in Elixir, but it's not uh, it's not necessary. For is like with expressions, but for generators, which is kind of fascinating. And 
I had worked quite a bit with Python just before I got into Elixir, and Python has four comprehensions, uh, or list comprehensions. And one of the more fascinating parts of Python is that the list comprehension is kind of spread into other data types. So now they have um, set comprehensions and dictionary comprehensions and generators and lots of other exciting stuff. Um, so it it was a quite a natural way to go to the four comprehension in Elixir, which of course meant that I didn't use it for the first six months or something I programmed in Elixir. <laughs> <laughs> because it felt awkward and it doesn't compose very well with the pipe operator, or it doesn't feel like it should compose very well, so I don't compose it. Yeah, I tend to also prefer sort of pipeable structures some yeah. people say you shouldn't pipe into a case statement honestly i find that very clear to read yeah i just don't do it for some reason i yeah i don't know why it's surprisingly clear to me yeah but, uh, yeah i i get that it's probably not the neatest idea but can you pipe into cases yeah you can pipe it's just pipe into case do <laughs> nice Oh, you've opened a can of worms there. Now yeah. I'm only going to pipe into cases. Going to remove so many intermediate variables. <laughs> oh, a wild thing that I didn't know you could do that I think you can do is also multiple function heads in an anonymous function. Yes, that's one of my favorite things to write because it's... It's very surprising when you yeah. see... <laughs> yeah, and the code becomes kind of clear when you've gotten used to it and it's a i mean it just looks like a case statement yeah uh, so you don't have to write the function and then the anonymous function and then a case case expression in it uh, so that's good and it's also i like to use them in filter functions that would make sense yeah so to pattern match on things and then return something good so yeah okay so but more generally functional programming i guess what is what are other things about it to teach like immutability is probably one of the big gotchas like but is it trip well um isn't it mutability put, is. for example yeah map put would trip me up immensely when starting elixir because i kept forgetting to bind the value to something so i never really updated my map i just updated it and left it there yeah yeah <laughs> The void. <laughs> I did it the other way around in Python. Very embarrassing. <laughs> oh, you tried to bind. <laughs> you tried to bind the output. Uh, yeah. In Python. And and being like, nah, this shouldn't update anything, and then it does. And yeah, exciting times. Yeah. So okay, immutability is, is has teeth. Yeah. No early returns, and the final value being the return. That was also things to get used to. Yeah. Oh, we have that bug for a long time. We have, have had a check at the beginning of the function in an if that said, mm. if the webhook is set and yada, 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 then evaluate to an error tuple. And then yep. nothing takes care of that value. And then the function just continues. So, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> oops <laughs> yeah. 
generate an error and ignore it yep. immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Quite good. I wonder if Credo at all uh, can <laughs> will scream at that kind of things. Depends. Oh no. <laughs> no, but but you've done Haskell and stuff. Is there other things that you think are fundamental to functional programming that you think Elixir either glosses over or that you think also apply in Elixir that I'm just not touching on? Well, every language has its own way of doing things. Doing things in a good Elixir way isn't necessarily the same way you would do it in Haskell and vice versa. So uh, you hinted at the monad, the scary monad, and I can miss monads. I usually do when I don't program in Haskell. But I can also miss a rich type system. But one thing I think that Elixir does right, and that makes Elixir such an amazing language, is that it's quite small. Uh, yeah. And you can you can even reduce the subset of the language you use, which you talked about earlier. And it's still a very useful language. So I think I ranted about the with expression and for expression and so on earlier and said that they aren't really useful. They are nice, but not useful. So hmm. one thing that Haskell does that Elixir does like kinda, but not really, which trips me over, is guards. So you can do the same thing in case expressions in Haskell that you do in Elixir, but Haskell guards are just functions. So anything that returns a Boolean is you can put there. Yeah. It makes me <laughs> frustrated that I need to jump through hoops and be very careful when using guards in Elixir. So it feels like I very rarely use guards. <laughs> almost good. Oh, then you haven't encountered my fr <laughs> frustrations. That's so cool. I've used guard. I use guards every now and then, but I've also gotten to know them only through Elixir. And it is a little bit weird that some functions are okay and some aren't, because fundamentally, I guess those guards are either macros or something else. It's like they're they're special guard things, at least. So like is nil is binary. Yeah, I think they are compiled down into something that doesn't have side effects. Hmm. So yeah, yeah. Well, in, in Haskell, you can't use something that has side effects as a guard either because they have their own type, hmm. except for when you can. But that's let's ignore <laughs> that. So, yeah, that's... What are things you do with guards uh, in Haskell that you wouldn't do in, or you couldn't do in Elixir? Just on a high-level way to explain it is to say I first have the pattern match where yeah. I get some useful stuff so I can see that the data has the right shape. And then I do a guard where I check that some properties of this data actually hold, and then I do the thing. So let's assume that we have um, a system for doing table reservations. Then I could check that we've actually gotten a table reservation. That's the first part, and that it has all the fields I'm interested in. So I can see that. Very good. And then I can see, and then I, in Haskell, I could run a function that checks with the input data to <laughs> the function I'm doing, the pattern matching and guards and stuff in. I could check that there are enough tables, that there actually exists a table 
such that we can make this reservation. Oh yeah, so if you got a sort of list of tables and a reservation, you could write a guard that uh, no, like your case would check that it is indeed a reservation that I'm getting, yep. and your guard could check that there are uh, reservations that this, uh, or there are tables that this reservation could work yep. with. And and it's a slightly strange example because the type checker would scream at me if it wasn't a reservation and so on. But maybe I want to get something out of this. Yeah, you can you can match for multiple reasons. But yeah, like an email address or something. So yeah, whatever. Let's say you're getting a list of reservations, and for one case, is did I just get one? Yeah, that's a special case. Yeah, and yeah, but so. But what's left for your function to do? Oh, not much. <laughs> it's it's mainly a way to write more dense code, and I like writing dense code. So I guess it's it's for the best that I can't do it. Grump, grump, etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do actually like writing dense code. I remember when yeah. I unleashed you uh, on a Python project for a previous job, and there were a lot of sort of two-letter variables in that Python yeah. code. A lot of stuff getting dense. But I learned a, I learned what a partial was from funk tools. Oh, yes. Yes, that's cool. Uh, and that doesn't exist at all in Elixir because it doesn't no, exist No, partial application doesn't. Yeah, I think you can do it if you use witchcraft. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you just wanted to say if you use witchcraft, right? Yes. Such a good <laughs> module name. Oh, yes. The marketing behind that package. Yes. Also very appropriate because it's a pretty good warning sign. If it says in your code, use witchcraft. It's like, oh, this is going to hurt. <laughs> yep. But that that is a big sort of functional programming concept, like all this stuff with currying and functional comp- function composition and partial application and stuff. And I see some of that in Elm. Yeah. Which I also use on a daily basis. And it certainly has its its neat uses. I'm pretty glad Elixir does not let you send like pipe in two directions because I just find it confusing. Like Elm has arrows all over the place if yep. you if you like to do that. But yeah, partial application is it can be really useful, but I can I think I have a sense, like my intuition says, yeah, it makes sense why this is not in Elixir, because it seems like it would wreak havoc on the way Elixir deals with functions and processes and all of that. Just it doesn't compile down to to something quite so dense. Like an Elixir module after compilation keeps its shape, sort of. Yep. Uh, and uh, in Elm, like a module and a module after compilation does not exist as far as I'm aware. Yeah. It's just JavaScript, big blob. I had a conversation with some Elixir curious enthusiasts in actually in this town. So I'm doing local things. Sick. Yeah. And one of the people listening to me prattle on about Elixir, I was invited to prattle. So it was, it was polite of me. Uh, it was reasonable. But he w- went, why wouldn't you do it in Rust instead? I'm like, because waves vaguely and it took a bit to actually pin down like according to him rust does not feel 
that much heavier to write than a high-level language. I think there are a bunch of asterisks there, but I like his experience is his experience, and I'll take that for uh, at face value to have the conversation. So it's like, okay, yeah, let's let's assume uh, Rust is as high level as Elixir, but it also has types which he likes. Um, why? Would you have this loosely dynamic, highly uh, like high level dynamic language instead of having types and stuff? And I know it's like, oh yeah, OTP and hot code updates would be super hard to do with a strict type system. But that's not an explanation why there isn't necessarily a type system at this point. Like, why wouldn't you do the same thing in Rust? Well, you would have to implement the VM. After a while of sort of digging through the conversation, we came to one of the corners of Elixir that I don't think about all that much, but is incredibly unusual, which is you can connect to the running system, inspect it, run things in it. It does not compile away uh, the things you built. It's, it's right there. You can call them modules and functions you can inspect the the running state and it looks the way you expect you're not operating at some sort of lower level i mean technically you're operating with with compiled code but it doesn't throw out everything at run uh, the runtime has access to everything to make to represent it well even when it's running and that's incredibly unusual and also very nice yeah, I think was it. Oh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, the nerves guy, Frank Hunleth. Yeah, I think he said that one of the better ways to deploy stuff to a running nerve system when you're just developing is to copy paste the code into the REPL. Yep, uh, I fixed a bug in a production system yes, like uh, two days ago by pasting a new module <laughs> in the REPL. So it's not a high traffic uh, production system and there was some data inconsistencies and I wanted to fix that so I could test whether a feature worked. And the data inconsistency was stopping me from testing the feature. And I already had most of the code for fixing that data inconsistency. I needed to adjust it a little bit and I needed it on the production machine to run it. So I wrote it up, pasted it, fixed the compilation errors, pasted it again until I had something I could run. And then I ran it and it fixed it. And do I suggest everyone code live on their production system? Absolutely. Cool. Then we're, we're, we have consensus there. So, <laughs> yep, all the time.